Good morning, Calvary. It is so good to be with you. I'm so happy to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at the Boulder campus. I love being in worship with you every week. I've loved opening the book of Hebrews with you. I've loved singing with you. It's awesome. I don't know what brought you to church today, like why you're here. People come to church for all sorts of different reasons. Maybe a friend invited you, asked you to come to church with them. Maybe you just felt obligated to come to church this morning. Maybe you're here for the music. Maybe you're here for a message. Maybe you're here for the donut holes in the cafe after church. I just want to affirm for all of us that that first song that we sang together is the definition of why we are here together. Those words, we are here for you, sung to our Father in heaven, defines why all of us are gathered here this morning. And my prayer for you is that as we gather and as we open his word, that you will encounter him that you will hear God speak to you as we open the book of Hebrews together, that you will be reminded of what he has promised to you, of who you are in his eyes, and that you will experience God. That's why we are here. Now, when we're here and we open the Bible together and we're preaching, do any of you just ever wish we would just get to the point? You may feel like that in about 10 minutes. (laughs) I have good news for you, though. Hebrews chapter 8 begins by getting to the point. So I hope you have a Bible, and I hope you will open it with me to the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament. It's towards the end of the New Testament. It's right before the book of James and right after this little letter called Philemon. And we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 8 today. Our author begins chapter 8 this way. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Thank you, finally. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. If you, if you were here with us last week as we looked at chapter 7, this is essentially the summary statement of what we explored last week. Monica, can we have verse 1 up here, please? Thank you. So we saw two things about Jesus last week. The first thing that we saw is here in verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Remember, Jesus is a priest. And then the second thing we learned about him is what follows. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus is a priest and Jesus is a king. That's right. That is one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and was raised again to new life, is our great high priest in the order of this mysterious figure we talked about last week, Melchizedek, and he is also a king. So he is ruling and reigning in heaven right now as we gather under his name and listen to his word. That is the summary statement of chapter 7, and it's maybe the summary of the entire book of Hebrews, that Jesus is a priest and a king, which means he can do what only he can do. We saw a summary statement in in chapter 7 as well, verse 25, which said, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. 
So Jesus, our priest and king, died to save you, and he lives today in heaven to pray for you. That's what intercession means. That is the beginning of chapter 8, and it summarizes this key theme of the book of Hebrews. And we are now in what is sort of the central section of this great book. Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 are sort of the thesis statement of the book of Hebrews. And they explore all sorts of important themes that relate back to the Old Testament system. There are four parts of the Old Testament system that chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 cover. The first one we just talked about is the priesthood. That's what chapter 7 was all about. This idea that Jesus is our great high priest, and we explored a little bit of the history of the priesthood last week and why, important, how, why that is so important. Priests represented people before God in the Old Testament system. That was their role. They mediated the relationship between God and his people. They made intercession for them on behalf of the people. Their lives also as priests were meant to be an example. They were teachers. Their ministry also was primarily thought of as, as of happening excuse me, in a certain place. That's the second component of the Old Testament system that Hebrew deals with. And that place is called the sanctuary or the most holy place or the holy of holies. It was inside, in the Old Testament days, the tent or the tabernacle or the temple The presence of God on the earth where the priests would go in to make sacrifices. And once a year into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. This is the focus of the first five verses of chapter 8, which we'll look at briefly today, and the first part of chapter 9, which we'll cover next week. In this place, in the sanctuary, there were offerings of sacrifice. That's an important theme that will be carried on from chapter 9 through chapter 10. So those three components, the priesthood, the sanctuary, sacrifice, and then today we're going to talk about the covenant. Now one of the problems that we face as we study this book or letter or sermon to a first century audience is that our familiarity with this is not as much as the first century audience that this letter was written to. This letter was written to Hebrews, to followers of Jesus who had a history or a background in Judaism. So these components, priesthood, sanctuary, sacrifice, covenant, which sound archaic and ancient to us, were real to them. It's what they had grown up in. It's what they had lived. And the argument that the author of the book of Hebrews makes is that Jesus is greater than this Old Testament system. Now, it might not be as pointed of an argument for us today because we, most of us, don't have this background, don't understand what it was like to journey to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement, to see priests in their priestly clothing, to experience the sacrifice and know what that meant for us, to experience all these Old Testament religion and rituals that were a part of their day-to-day life. But we're discovering as we're journeying through Hebrews that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system. Now this part today about the covenant, most of that is found in the second part of chapter 8, and we'll get to that in a moment. 
but we're going to start by reading the first half of chapter 8, and you'll notice these four components in the first half of chapter 8 as we read it together. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, that's the sanctuary, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he, this is speaking of Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Just a comment about verse 4. The reason why it says if Jesus were on the earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all is because Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi, which is where the Levitical priesthood came from. You had to be a descendant of Levi in order to be part of the Old Testament priesthood. This was the whole purpose of chapter 7 last week, that Jesus is not in the order of Levi. He couldn't be because he is a descendant of Levi's brother Judah, but instead God made accommodation for this before the priesthood even existed by this mysterious man, Melchizedek. And so Jesus is an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he wasn't qualified to serve as a priest on the earth, but now that he is in heaven because of what he has accomplished, he is. Verse 5, the Old Testament priests serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They point to Jesus and what's to come. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. We'll get into more of this next time in chapter 9, but this is essentially saying, one of the other main arguments of Hebrews, that all of this Old Testament stuff, why did it exist? What was its purpose? Part of its purpose was to point to or be a shadow of the things that would come for people to see when Jesus came to the earth that he was the fulfillment ultimately of all of these components of the Old Testament system. And then verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This idea of covenant is a really important part of biblical history. Maybe you'll remember this chart that we looked at last week. This is a very high level, overly simplistic view of biblical history. In chapter 6, there was a big discussion about Abraham. The promises that were made to Abraham. There was a covenant that was made between God and Abraham. God said to Abraham, Abraham, I will give you a great name. From you will come a great nation, and by you all nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. That's what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. There are other covenants in the Bible. One of them was through Moses, but made to the people of God, to the nation of Israel. That's what's known as the Old Covenant. It's also known as the Mosaic Covenant because it was given to God through Moses to the people. And it happened on Mount Sinai. So it's also known as the Sinai Covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It can be between people. It can be between a person and an organization. Essentially, a covenant is a, is a promise 
that an official agreement will be maintained between those two parties. So in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, there was a promise made from God to Abraham that this agreement, this arrangement, that he would receive a great name and from him would come a great nation and by him all nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the agreement between God and Abraham. In the Mosaic covenant, there was an agreement between God and the people that they would obey him. We'll talk more about what some of the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant were in a moment. Some of you might live in a covenant-controlled community, okay? So you move in there, and you receive this list of covenants, and then you make an agreement between you and the homeowners association that you'll cut the grass and pull weeds, and you won't park your car on cinder blocks in your front lawn, and you abide by the covenants. And if you do that, everything's great. And if you don't, then you get one of those mean letters from the HOA. And if you don't repent of your sin, then they will, you know, put a lien on your house or something terrible will happen to you. A mortgage is a kind of covenant. A bank makes a promise to you that they will give you money for a house as long as you promise to pay back that loan or over a period of 15 or 20 or 30 years with interest. And both sides have to uphold their agreement. And of course, your side is the most important. If you don't make your mortgage payments, then the bank will own your house. That's a covenant, a promise between two parties. So the old covenant, which was essentially, again, this is an overly simplistic chart. For all the engineering students here, I apologize that this is not as exact as you would like it. But bear with us. The Old Covenant essentially was enacted through Moses here and lasted until Jesus. Following that comes the New Covenant, which we will talk about more today. It occurred after Moses led God's people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and God revealed the Old Testament laws and structure and started the priesthood and gave instructions about the tabernacle, the tent, the place of worship, the sanctuary through Moses. And the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. The old covenant is conditional between God and his people. God gave these specific laws for his people to follow, a system to maintain their identity as the people of God and all sorts of external regulations. If the people were faithful to those regulations and requirements that God gave to them, then God promised to bless them. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy shows the conditional nature of the Old Covenant in chapter 11, verse 13, when it says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command to you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul, if you do these things... And then the rest of that chapter goes on to describe what God will do for them. They will receive material blessing. Their land will be blessed. It will rain so that their crops will grow and they will be protected from their external enemies and God will watch over them. And there were very specific material blessings that the nation of Israel would inherit if they kept their end of the bargain. But they were disobedient. You know the story of the Old Testament. The people of God, there were fits and starts, but overall, 
they weren't able to uphold the conditions of the covenant. All of these external rules and laws that were in place weren't effective for them. And eventually, all of those blessings of provision and protection were removed. The nation of Israel was divided. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And the people were taken captive. Now, during this especially dark period in the history of the people of God, God revealed His promised new covenant through a prophet He raised up named Jeremiah. So if we go back to our little timeline here, Jeremiah comes about 600 years before Jesus does, and it's at this especially dark period. The kingdom is divided, the city has been destroyed, and the people have been taken into captivity. And Jeremiah tries to get their attention and tries to tell them God has a purpose for you in the midst of your captivity, that you would learn lessons, that you would draw near to him, and in the midst of it, he reveals the new covenant to them, God's plan, which occurs through the Messiah, Jesus, and continues forever. And it is an unconditional covenant, unlike the old covenant, one that God makes between himself and his people, and he upholds it. That's what the rest of chapter 8 is about. Is anybody here thinking, will you just get to the point? (laughs) Okay, we will. Let's read the new covenant promised through the prophet Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8. So this is an extensive quote from the prophet Jeremiah. It's the longest Old Testament quote that is in the New Testament. And it begins in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is from Jeremiah 31, by the way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities." And I will remember their sins no more. This new covenant, rather than being based in part on our obedience, is an unconditional promise of God to his people. It is totally and entirely dependent upon God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay, remember in verse 6 of Hebrews 8, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. This covenant is better than the old, because it's all based on God and his work, and it includes better promises. This is where it gets good. This is the point of chapter 8. These better promises are promises that apply to you today in 2021 and to me. What are they? There are three better promises of the new covenant. First, there's a powerful promise. Second, there is a personal promise. 
And finally, there is a permanent promise. The first better promise of the new covenant is a powerful promise. In verse 10 of chapter 8, God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. How can that happen? How can laws which are external, created by somebody else, come inside of us, come into our minds and be written on our hearts? We're told to follow laws by someone outside of us. Legislators make laws. Laws are posted publicly on signs. They're written on paper. In the Old Testament, the laws of God were written on tablets of stone. How could a law be put into our minds and written on our hearts? That's why this is a powerful promise. Because this is the work of the Holy Spirit. That power which works to align our hearts with His and help us to obey His commands internally. That comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is only possible if we have been transformed by Him. If we've been born again through the power of the Holy Spirit which then enables us inwardly to love the law of God, to obey it, to desire to follow it. That is not, by the way, the natural inclination of the human heart. Our default position as people is one of disobedience. And so it requires the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit to get inside of us and reshape us and change our heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that we would desire to obey the law of God. God must do His work to write His law on our hearts. And so once the Holy Spirit lives within us, by the power of God, the law is in our minds, written on our hearts. I want you to see this striking image here between the Old Covenant, a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The law of God in the Old Covenant was literally written on stones by the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. And here in the New Covenant, God writes His law on our hearts. The idea of the heart in Hebrew is is not just like this physical part of our body that beats, but it's like our emotions and our will, our desires. It's what causes us to want to, need to obey what God says. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly all the time, but if, if you're sitting here today and you think, gosh, I, I didn't obey something I, I know I should have obeyed yesterday or the day before or last week or whenever it was, The simple fact that you feel convicted in your heart that you were disobedient is an indication that the Holy Spirit lives within you and is writing the law of God on your heart so that you know, God, I need to realign my heart with you. You are faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit indwells within me and lives inside of me and I ask you to reorient my heart back to yours. That is the picture of a new covenant believer who by the saving grace of Jesus Christ has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, God is moving his people from a system of external obedience based on laws to inward desire. 
And it happens through the work of the Holy Spirit, which is who Jesus promised to his people before he left the earth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What did Jesus ask us to do when we witness about him to the ends of the earth? Think of the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That happens. People can go commissioned by Jesus because he writes the law of God on their hearts. So they can go and they can teach people to obey him, to follow him, to follow his commands. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is resident in every believer. And this powerful promise changes everything from the old covenant to the new. The Apostle Paul talks about the seismic shift that happens when the gift of the Holy Spirit is received in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, this is Jews who have not yet come to believe in Jesus, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. The veil is a symbol for the hardness of heart that existed in, that exists really in any person who does not yet know Jesus. And it's symbolic because that veil is removed by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Because only through Christ is it taken away, is the veil lifted. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the work of God to allow us to understand what God has revealed to us through his scripture by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first promise of the new covenant, a powerful promise of the Holy Spirit. The second promise is a personal one. Back in verse 10. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This promise is a personal promise of a relationship with God the Father. No longer needing a priest to help navigate that relationship or mediate it, but direct access to God himself, personally. This is one of the most amazing realities of the Christian life. Nearly every world religion has the concept of a priest, someone that needs to stand between people and God. Islam has it. Judaism has it. Hinduism, Buddhism. There is someone who must stand between people and God. And yet for the Christian, that is entirely unnecessary. God himself came to the earth and died so that we could personally have a relationship with him. Now in verse 11, it goes on, quoting Jeremiah, to say, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." 
There are no conditions. There are no requirements, no need to have someone broker the relationship between us and God. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, where you've come from. It says that from the least of them to the greatest shall all know the Lord. From the least to the greatest. My friends, if you ever feel insignificant because of where you've come from or because of your position or your circumstances or if you just feel unimportant, know this. You are invited, welcomed to know the King of Kings and the Lord of all lords, the one who has made everything. You have No matter where you are, where you've come from, who you are, what your background is, you have unrestricted access to a personal relationship with God who is in heaven. You know, if you go to a concert, you might get like a backstage pass. You get to go hang out with the band before or after the show. Maybe you get awesome tickets in the front row seat and you are closer in proximity to the band. You're someone special, unique, better than those of us who sit in the cheap seats. That is not at all what the new covenant promises. The new covenant promises personal, direct access to God. You don't need a special pass. You don't have to get to the front of of the sanctuary. Every person who is called on the name of Jesus has this personal relationship with God. And there's no limit to it. It's a universal offer to all who would believe. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 emphasizes this in verse 28 when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is equality under the name of Jesus Because every person who is called on his name has a personal relationship with God. So whoever you are, wherever you are, you are promised a personal relationship with our Father who is in heaven. And this this is also a permanent promise. Verse 12, back in Hebrews says, For I will be, this is God speaking, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. This is one of the fundamental problems of the old covenant. It was ultimately unable to forgive sins. We'll look at that in more detail in the chapters in Hebrews that are to come. But in order for sin to be dealt with, God had to send his son into the world to be the once for all sacrifice for sin. And by doing so, he demonstrated mercy toward our iniquities. He accomplished once and for all the forgiveness of sins for his people. Mercy means that God does not give us what we actually deserve. Because our default state as humans is defiance and disobedience toward God, because we are all by by nature sinners, what we deserve, according to Romans, is that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But God is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he grants us mercy. 
He gives us grace, unmerited favor, and he offers us salvation through his son. And so he demonstrates, he shows mercy to us when he forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This isn't a one-time forgiveness or a limited-time offer. No, he says, I will remember their sins no more. If you follow Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, but they are forgotten. There is no record of sin. God does not catalog all the mistakes that we've made. There's no book that lists all of our failures. God does not remember them. This is a permanent promise of God. Our forgiveness is forever. It doesn't last an hour or a day or a week or even a lifetime. It's an eternal, eternal permanent state of forgiveness. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Okay, three better promises from the New Covenant. First, a powerful promise of the Holy Spirit. A personal promise of a relationship with God. And a permanent promise of forgiveness through Jesus. Here's the best part. Who does the New Covenant depend on? You? Me? Listen, if my faith depends on my own personal faithfulness, it's going to fail. But if my faith depends on the faithfulness of God, I'll be fine. And so will you. My prayer for you is if you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Savior, that you would just take a moment here Think about what God has promised to his people. Power, a personal relationship with him, and a permanent state of forgiveness. And I would just call on you to call on him, to ask Jesus, our great high priest, who is able to forgive you of sins, ask him to do it. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for who you are. That you are a covenant-keeping God. That you have promised us an eternal covenant secured through your Son, Jesus Christ, because of his work and his accomplishment on the cross, proven by your raising him from the dead to new life. I pray for any heart that is here today, God, that may be far from you or needs to return to you. I pray by the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would do your work on the inside. Remind them of your love for them and call them to obedience to follow your Son, Jesus, our great high priest, the one and only Son of God, who you sent from heaven to earth to redeem us, 
to restore our relationship with you and to grant us these beautiful promises that you have made and you are faithful to keep. May you be glorified in heaven, God, as we are here on the earth. May you remind us of your steadfast, enduring, eternal love for us today. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.